Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Joined by Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. Thanks so much for the download, both at iTunes or at BaseballAmerica.com. Of course, you can follow us uh, at Twitter. We've got close to 9,000 followers on our Twitter account. Uh, we've got a question up right now on our Facebook page. If you want to send us a question, we'll hope to take a question from our Facebook uh, uh, followers today during the podcast. For future podcasts, you can email us at podcast at baseballamerica.com. And, Jim, we just have so much to get to today with the uh, Top 100. I'm going to have to delay the beginning of it one more time to remind people that it's also uh, coming to you live from the DeMarini Demo House podcast nook because when it comes to buying a baseball bat, DeMarini just changed the game. Introducing Demo House where you can step into the cage and hit the latest from DeMarini before you buy because there's no substitute for hitting a real baseball or talking to people who know both bats and batting. Your demo time in the cage is free. Get the season started right and visit your nearest Demo House today. Locations and full details can be found at demarini.com backslash demohouse. Jim Callis, welcome into the podcast. Let's dive right into the top 100. Uh, you know, have you been involved now basically for 20 years? With a little interregnum involved in, in there, I, I understand. But basically for the better part of the last 20 years, the 20 years of, of top 100 history, you've pretty much been involved from start to finish with except that, that two-year exception, right? But yeah, I think it was three years. I, I was gone from like mid-97 through mid-2000, but okay. uh, that is correct. And, in fact, uh, uh, I, I will take credit for starting the, the Top 100 Prospects back in, I guess, 1990 was our first year we did it. Uh, Sporting News came out with a book around that time that I believe was written by Rob Raines, who was also our Cardinals correspondent at the time. And where the Sporting News had like a – it wasn't a big, thick book, but it was, you know, like, but it was more than like your spring training – you know, kind of annual type of thing where they, they ranked the top 100 prospects in baseball, had stats and so many scouting reports. And and when I saw that, I said, well, why aren't we doing this? I mean, we're supposed to be, you know, the definitive experts on prospects. And you know, at that point, we were doing top 10 lists. Free organization had been for seven or eight years, you know, as well as free minor league and all the draft rankings. So we, we started, and I, I still remember uh, Steve Avery, I think, beat out Ben McDonald and John Olerud for uh, the number one spot on our first list. I, I believe that's correct. Your, your memory is pretty good there. But I did not realize that was the genesis of the, uh, of the top 100. But uh, here all these years later, and I think there, there were, like you said, there were three that you weren't involved with. I really didn't get involved until really the last five, six years. So, uh we used to have a little bit more of a closed house, and this year we opened the house, and we still only had really four staffers who really contributed strongly to the top 100. So a little bit more of a, of a smaller group that got together, and yet we still, uh, you know, we were still changing our minds until late in the process, which I think we'll talk a little bit about the process. The specific list has been out for a little while now as we record this, more about a day. Uh, but, Jim, I think one of the most fascinating things about our top 100 this year was deciding the number one prospect. And we went back and forth a little bit between Jason Hayward and Steven Strasburg. Uh, among the four people who actually submitted ballots, we actually had two for Hayward and two for Strasburg. But I think until late in the process, we had Strasburg as the number one prospect. But as we kept gathering information, we kept coming back to the consensus in the industry seems to be that it's Jason Hayward. And it's really, I think, it seems like, and tell me if you agree or not, that it's really more the, the safer bet with the hitter versus the pitcher. But there's also this realization out there that uh, the, the argument for Strasburg almost is more like the value 
of having a number one prospect, a number one pitcher, a true number one starter. And that's really what you're kind of having to try to balance when you rank one as number one and one as number two, right? Yeah, and you know the thing is, you know, the great thing about doing stuff like this is I don't think there's a right answer. You know, we're not comparing you know Stephen Stephen Strasburg to you know just some random guy where you know like Jack, just pick a random national Jack McGeary. Okay? Right. There, there is a right answer there. Stephen Strasburg is better than Jack McGeary, but you know when you're comparing you know Stephen Strasburg, a college pitcher who's never played pro ball, versus Jason Hayward a high school hitter who's played very well in pro ball for a couple of years. It's really apples and oranges. So there is no right answer. And, you know, I think you and I were the two people who voted for, for Strasburg. And I kind of looked at it from a, a scarcity uh, issue. I, I think Strasburg has a chance to be, you know, maybe the best way of putting it is a rarer talent than, than Jason Hayward. And I love Jason Hayward as a prospect too, but, you know, when I was working on a column and where we were trying to figure out who had the best individual tools of players on this top 100 list, um, I had a so but last year, you know, our big top 100 feature was Matt Wieters versus David Price. You know, here are two of the best prospects in recent memory who's better. And I remember at the time being surprised, not so much that Matt Wieters won, but that he won so overwhelmingly. I, I don't remember the count. I think it was like 10 to 2 or 9 to 3. It was pretty one-sided. Um, so this time around, uh, one of the guys I asked was talking to about tools was a guy who participated in that last year, the Wieters versus Price debate. And I didn't bring it up, but he said, hey, I don't know if you guys are doing this again. I'm sure your top two prospects are Hayward and Strasburg. And, and just start raving about how much he loved Hayward. And, you know, you know, obviously like Strasburg, but like Hayward too. So I started running that question by other people. We were talking about tools. And I think I had four people respond to me. And two people liked Hayward just flat out. Pure ability would take him over Strasburg. And the other two said, you know what, it's very close, but if it's close, I'll take the hitter over the pitcher because of the injury risk. So it was kind of unanimous among, you know, we're talking to you know, player personnel experts who are high up the, the food chain with their individual clubs. And, and so we went the, made the late switch from Strasburg back to, uh, back to Hayward. And, you know, and, and here's, uh, and I guess that's one thing I did want to talk about a little bit today. Um, as some people may have noticed, I talked about this on the blog yesterday. I'm not sure if you did, Jim. In the comments section of our top one, we posted our top 100 on the blog and uh, have comments. Uh, I, c- I kept calling yesterday uh, the lost podcast. I kept referring to the podcast that you and I recorded yesterday and that I I botched. So uh, we're, we're redoing that, obviously. And uh, I'm trying to avoid covering the exact same ground because I did refer to a lot of it uh, yesterday in the uh, on the blog. But one thing that uh, I, I did refer to, uh, I think uh, repeatedly yesterday, was our process and. I guess that's one other thing I, I'm curious. Uh, there, there have definitely been times over the last few years where our process really is we're journalists, we're not scouts. We certainly know enough about baseball where we can see, okay, that's a breaking ball, that's a fastball, these kind of basic things. But at the same time, I don't think either one of us ever tries to scout. I don't think a lot of people at BA try to scout. Even the guys who were hired as scouts, I don't think they were trying too much to scout, some more than others. Uh, I'm looking at you, Alan Matthews, but that's okay. Um, I still Matt think Blood. what's that Matt Blood? That's right. Said Matt Blood. <laughs> Absolutely. But both those guys also I know did talk to plenty of people as well, and they never really went only on their own um, look. Um, I definitely don't think so. I definitely think our process is a different process. We really are trying to report on who the industry thinks the top prospects are, but there is a point where your opinion of what makes a prospect or my opinion of what makes a better prospect comes in. I, I guess what I found out in this top 100, for example, is that I'm probably the low guy on Dustin Ackley, which is 
shocking. I guess I just put a little bit – I guess I'm just waiting to see a little bit on just uh, how his position will end up playing out. But I think looking at him at 11 on our top 100, he's only number 11 because I ranked him so low. And I, I kind of think I, I kind of feel like I did Dusty a disservice there uh, by not ranking him high enough. Um, but what was some of the – did you find out more about a prospect in this uh, – during this process? Did you oh, – just ranking the top 100, did you – was there a player that you almost have a little bit of regret that you ranked too high? Or is there somebody that you found out more about and you wish you'd ranked higher? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, who was somebody that you learned a lot about just in the process of doing the top 100? Well, I think there, you, you, you're always, you know, getting more information. And, you know, the, starting with the, the process as a whole, I mean, you know, you could go to a game or I can go to a game and we could see things. But, you know, I want to make clear, too, you know, it's, it's our list. It's Baseball America's list. It's not the industry saying rank this guy here, rank that guy there. Right. But I, I think the, where, where the Baseball America approach may differ from other people's uh, or other organizations that they try to cover prospects is that I don't presume that if I go see uh, Christian Cologne in a College World Series game or two College World Series games, that what I see on those two days is the be-all and end-all in Christian Cologne. Uh, you know, which is why we talk to so many people and constantly get information. So I think we're trying to build a consensus somewhat, but also, you know, having done this as long as you and I have too, you see certain types of prospects or, or certain types of tools that don't play as well or maybe play better. I, I think, you know, we're all still trying to figure out, you know, and there's more metrics now, but, but nobody still knows exactly how to quantify the value of defense versus offense or you know, I think we're more cognizant of you know, looking at a guy like Zach Britton, who's got the great sinker. Right. He doesn't have tremendous velocity. It's average velocity. If you were just looking at his fastball and you were to say, well, he's 88 to 92, you wouldn't be blown away. But but you talk about the fact that he has tremendous sink and that he can maintain it for, you know, deep into games and he has a tremendous ground ball ratio. You have a better appreciation for that. But, you know, some of the guys that, that – the interesting things that came up when I was you know, surveying these player personnel experts about tools was Ackley was one. I mean, we had Hayward initially ranked as the best hitter, best pure hitter in, in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, and he's obviously proven a lot in his time in in pro ball. And and guys, I had three or four guys who brought up to me. You know, if you're talking about a guy who's got the best chance to win a batting title, hit for the highest average, I'll take Ackley. And it, it surprised me a little bit that they were that strong that quickly on Ackley, even though he hadn't played pro ball yet, which is not something we really put a big emphasis on either when we're doing rankings because we're looking down the road to long-term talent. But then on the – so I was a little surprised that they were that gung-ho comparing him to, say, a guy like Hayward who's torn it up. But then on the flip side of it, uh, you know, I, I go back to when we were doing our draft stuff a year ago, and I was trying to get – you know, guys were talking about how great Ackley was. He's the best hitter I can remember. He's the best hitter in a decade or two decades. And, and I thought, like, to me, a good comp for Ackley, I always thought was Todd Helton, who – I, I will maintain that if you hadn't played in course field, we know him as more of a, a high average hitter who hit like 20 to 25 homers a year. And I think Ackley's going to be that same type of player. And, and, and you know, Todd Helton's a guy who could go to the Hall of Fame. And guys, when I brought up that comp, were like, oh, no, no, Ackley's better than Todd Helton. That's, that's really and, funny that you think that. Just how people instantly said, oh, he's, he's way better than Todd Helton. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, it, just, like, it wasn't like, you know, they molded over. Oh, you know, I like Ackley, but it was like, oh, no, he's better than that. And really, the guy they compared him to was Robin Ventura, who you could argue is as good a pure hitter as there ever was in college baseball. And the guy and did also, have a 50 if you're going back history. 25 years to Ventura now, you know, most of these guys we're talking to don't go back much further than 25 years. So I, I guess you know, the fact that they regarded Ackley, you know, I had a hint of it last year, and, and this just reinforced it. Uh, you know, a couple of other interesting things that came up, we were talking about the best tools of guys on our top 100 list. 
and Jose Iglesias with the Red Sox did not make our top 100 list, and you guys were bringing him up without being asked about him. You know, because we had Alcides Escobar as the best defender who's on the top 100. Everybody's like, well, Escobar's, you know, he's good. He's well above average. But Iglesias is clearly better. Iglesias is the best guy. So that that jumped out. I think the fact uh, you you, alluded, you mentioned this in the last podcast, uh, two guys brought up uh, Neftali Feliz as having the best changeup right. in the minors. You know, and he arguably has, you know, he and Strasburg have the two best fastballs. And there was another Rangers pitcher, you know, Martin Perez was, you know, when you talk about, Guys, you wish you rank. I, I wish I'd put Iglesias in my top 100. I wish that I'd maybe rank Martin Perez a little bit higher. Because one thing we did this year that was a little different was we try to, and I think it was the most informative top 100 that we've done. Because rather than trying to say something pithy that we've already said it, when we've been doing the top 10s, we we identify each player's best tool. Which you know, with some guys it's pretty clear might stand. His best tool is clearly his power. Right. Other guys, you know, it, it's harder to pin down. And the interesting thing was for Perez. Is, is you know, like we initially had his curveballs his best tool, and then I had somebody tell me, you know what, I've got his fastballs a seventy fastball. We like his fastball better. And then somebody else said, you know, Perez has one of the best changeups in the minors. And I, I think on any given day, he'll flash you a sixty-five or a seventy pitch on the twenty to eighty scouting scale with any of his three pitches. And he's left-handed, obviously too. So he, he was a guy. Yeah, I wish I ranked a little higher. And I just think it's the type of thing and. You and I think are both the same way, John. It's like we love talking about this stuff, getting more and more information. And right. I'm sure if we sat down and started the top 100 process from scratch today, yeah. the list would look very similar to what we have right now. But it it, it would be different. We would probably be moving guys around and have you know probably maybe three or four guys who didn't make the list on it now, and obviously three or four guys come off. I mean, you can always tinker with those things. And that's it, especially because like cause like I think it goes back to the first point you made. There's no right answer. You know, there it, it's uh, we're prognosticating so by definition. There's no correct answer when it comes to something like this. Everyone on this top 100 list is a pretty high-level prospect. Obviously, even the guys at the back of the list, even some of the guys who missed uh, the top 100. So we're talking about you know the best of the best here. I mean, how many thousand minor uh, minor league players are there? So to try to hone it down to a top 100 is a challenge. And uh, we certainly could go deeper. I mean, I think we'd have a lot of fun in some ways going deeper. And that's why we went and took uh, you know, your crazy idea from uh, late night work on the handbook, having a draft of nine, the draft of 900 and ended up having a feature that will be online uh, soon at baseballamerica.com, which is our draft of 330. Basically all 11 full-time staffers here at BA, we all drafted uh, our draft at our own top 30 prospects list and uh, had a major league executive grade our drafts, and I was very pleased, Jim, and relieved that you and I came out in the top three, or else we'd have to turn in our badges if we'd come in so low. Um, but well, Jake, I'm still bitter that I got ranked low internally. We didn't we didn't have an outside ranker when we did our uh, draft of major leaguers, however many years ago it was. Or oh, the, the dream players, draft. And, and I, I drafted for the long term, and I, I feel vindicated. People go back and look at my draft uh, after I got saddled with the last pick, like I think you did with the draft of 300 or 330. Yeah, and I came out third in that with a draft with, with a last place draft pick. But anyway. And it was, it was funny, too. Well, we, we gave you the staggered draft where you had the first pick in rounds two and three. That's so true. That's true. You had to, which I did not get three years ago. You did but, not. Uh, I, I thought yeah, I had fun doing that. I wish we actually had drafted 900 players. We, we, we flipped through 330 pretty quick. I think it would have been fun we did. To, to see who would have been drafted at the end. We'll have to, to maybe try to resuscitate the draft of 900 or I, I think it was, a, it was amazing that we didn't even get through 
we got the 330 players, and Ben Badler was saying, hey, wait a minute, can I uh, can I draft guys who weren't in the top 30? <laughs> you know, he wanted to go he wanted to go outside the top 30s uh, just in our draft of 330, which uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess it just means he had good information on somebody who didn't make a top 30. Price of international guys. I, probably so. But yeah, no, I, the your dream draft from five years ago was scuttled just in hindsight by the fact that you took Mark Pryor with your first round pick. And obviously Mark hasn't done much since 2005. Well, I got hurt there, but I remember, I remember one John Manuel uh, questioning me for drafting a brittle Roy Halliday. Oh, that guy never pitches 200 innings. And uh, I can't imagine I said it that way. Justin Upton. I I crushed the rest of my draft. I just, uh, I don't think, I I think Felix Hernandez and Joe Maurer were the two picks right before me, which just crushed me at the time. And uh, I did not have a 10th guy. That was a classic. I think we had 10 teams, and there were nine guys I wanted, and I, I was left scrambling. It's, uh, it's I guess, my Devin Mezzarocco pick or something. So, <laughs> that's a good analogy. That's a, Devin Mezzarocco, but, uh, that's a good analogy. Hey, you know, we actually have a question, a live question, as I posted on our Facebook page. Hey, send us a question, and we'll uh, answer it uh, you know, during this podcast. And we have a uh, question from Nick Ustrom. Who asked about our number forty-six prospect on our top one hundred, Jim? What can Devaris Gordon do next year to make him the minors' best shortstop prospect? And uh, you know, I, I hadn't actually looked to see how far down among our shortstop prospects Devaris, uh, alias D Gordon, uh, ranks. But I well, guess we have him at forty-six, but he's he's in a good position actually because the only two shortstops who rank ahead of him. Right. Our Alcides Escobar, who on opening day will no longer qualify as a prospect, he's like three at bat short. So he'll he won't be in a shortstop prospect. And the hype up here, it's funny. I thought we were maybe well, I should say we maybe me because I started driving the train. I thought maybe I was a little bit overboard on Starlin Castro going into the off season. But but the hype is is out of control. I mean, there are people up here who believe, and there's talk that he could be the Cubs opening day shortstop. I know. I've seen that talk, and so, I mean. We started we started seeing a little bit of Starling Castro hype when he got the Double A last year, and then our uh, intern, our Uber intern Matt Foreman, now the editor at the uh, Northwestern Student Newspaper, and I don't mean the sports editor, the overall editor of the paper. Um, so he really, you know, obviously used BA as a springboard to great things already. But uh, you know, we went, he went over and did a feature on Starling Castro. That was one of the first, I think, national features I saw in him. And that was when he went to Double A is when he really started to blow up a little bit because he held his own in Double A. But and that train seems to have just runaway momentum, Jim. I mean, like uh, he might graduate to the big leagues. Uh, well, that's what I'm saying. So then that would lead D Gordon. I mean, you know, obviously D's gonna have some competition. We mentioned Jose Iglesias too. If he dazzles people like he did in the Arizona Fall League with his glove and, and hits it all, he'll be a contender. You have Grant Green with the Athletics. You have Tim Beckham. Uh, with the Rays, you have Gio Meyer uh, with the Astros as other contenders, but I think Gordon just needs to continue to add polish. I mean, people, I think people get a little hung up on his age, you know, relative to where he is along the minor league ladder at this point, and sometimes forget that he's not a guy who played a lot of baseball. I don't think he played much baseball before his senior year of high school, uh, which you know, and then he went to junior college, and then he they had a, a, tr- a transfer snafu. So he couldn't play the year he was drafted. So he does not have nearly as much baseball experience as most players his age. And it's certainly not as much as you'd expect of a son of a big leaguer, Tom Gordon. But um, I think he just needs to continue to do, you know, add polish. I mean, he, he, he shows you, you know, a little bit of everything. I mean, he's 
not the smoothest shortstop, but he's got plenty of range. He's got a, you know plenty of arm. He you know he could be a top base stealer. He needs to refine his technique. Uh, you know he puts the ball in play. His speed makes him a threat to reach base every time he hits the ball on the ground. I, I think it's just continued to grow like he did last year, and and that's how he could wind up being the top shortstop prospect in the minors, and especially if the top two guys ahead of him clear out of his way. Yeah, I think his biggest threat to that title really is Grant Green because I think we were very tempted to rank Grant Green higher. I know that you, I think you had Grant Green ranked higher when you did your own personal top 50 list, and you really liked D. Gordon. I think I, I, think I actually, uh, I'll correct you real quick, I had D. Gordon. Do you have him back to back? One spot ahead, okay. But I, I like Grant Green. I just really am I'm just a little confused about how much power, how much authority Grant Green is really going to hit the ball with and just really what kind of player he is. He was very anticipated out of high school, had a couple of great, you know, pretty good years at Southern Cal, but just an unbelievable summer in the Cape. And then didn't quite, I think, have a great junior year last year. I mean, I don't remember how many home, home runs he ended up hitting. I think he hit one in the Pac-10 all year last year. So I have real questions about, I don't know what his offensive ceiling is. And, uh, you know, so, but to me, Grant Green's the most natural guy who could uh, surpass D. Gordon. And then you know, I just was reading in our last issue about uh, Dustin Ackley maybe moving to second base. And there's a quote in there from uh, Jack Zarensic about uh, left-handed hitting middle infielders and how rare that would make uh, Dustin Ackley. And it just made me chuckle because it made me feel good because uh, that, Jack Zarensic saying that, because I've been saying that for a couple of years now about Reed Brignac. Reed Brignac can play shortstop. He's got tremendous gap power. He was leading the International League in doubles in 2008 when he was called up to the big leagues. And then he, he's had a hand injury since then, and he had a big league interruption, and he really struggled in his first big league chance. I think people have forgotten how good Reed Brignac is as a prospect. I think they get a little hung up on the fact that he's been blocked the last two years really by Jason Bartlett, but I really like Reed Brignac. I think from a value standpoint, having an athletic guy who can play shortstop and bats left-handed, that's just very hard to find, and I think he has extra value. And that's I, I love. Uh, that's why I like Reed Brignac, and D. Gordon's another one of those guys. Again, left-handed hitter, maybe can stay at the middle if he can stay in the infield especially. I just think it's a little bit extra value there. You just don't find too many left-handed hitters uh, who can do that in the game. So thanks for the question on our Facebook page. Uh, you can always, of course, email the uh, email of the show at uh, podcast at baseballamerica dot com. Uh, Jim, I have some other random top one hundred uh, observations. Uh, another guy, I guess. One thing that always comes up when we're ranking the top one hundred, we try to be true to our rankings in the top in, in the prospect handbook. At the very least, with the number one and number two guys, like D. Gordon at forty six ranks two spots ahead of Chris Withrow, also from the Dodgers at forty eight. I think Chris Withrow might make my top 20 rookies this year just because the Dodgers are so thin in big league pitching. And if Chris Withrow is healthy with his stuff, I could really see him making an impact in the second half of the big league season. But for the top 100, we really needed to make sure, I think, for the sake of consistency to leave Gordon ahead of, of Withrow. And not for the sake of, not just for consistency's sake, just because that's what's correct, I think. Uh, we have a process we need to – that's not just consistency for being small minor. That's consistency for being uh, taking a stand and following through on that stand. Um, but then there were also times where we tried to be consistent to a certain extent with our draft rankings uh, going into last year, last May. I guess there's some times where we were trying to be consistent with that. Other times where we let what happened in pro ball or the fact that we have more information over seven months. Maybe talk a little bit about how difficult that is sometimes because that, 
that really vexed, vexed us as we were trying to line up the list after we each compiled our own personal lists. Yeah, it did, and I think, you know, it's with all the rankings we do, and, and the way we do the different process with different people contributing, uh, you know, you know, ranking guys in specific order for the top 100, I think it'd be very difficult to make sure that we, we hew to all the different orders. I, I know when we do the prospect handbook, we do the top 10s and top 30s, you and I always, you know, look scrutinize the number one pick very much, and then we'll make recommendations and, and move guys around on lists. But for the most part, you know, if somebody's doing the list, a we trust them to do a good job, right? And b if you can defend why you put player A over player B, I might not agree with you, but then again, you've probably talked to you know three or four people within the organization, three or four people without the organization, plus the other reports we have. I'll give that person the benefit of the doubt that they can explain why they took one player over another, and it you know makes some logical sense. And we don't necessarily try. No, it always confuses people why we have some changes on this list. Although, like you said, we do try to hew and make the number one guy. You know, obviously we put the number one guy for a reason. So you just never want to hear. But with the drafting, I brought it up this year because what happens, I think, with all the different rankings we do, is I think sometimes guys move up people's minds and where they stand the overall top 100 based somewhat on where they rank on their their team's top 10 or top 30. Right. And when you, you almost are better off being a good prospect in a bad or bad system or thin system than you are being the comparable prospect in a better system because you stand out more. And then the guy who jumped out to me when we did our original list was that Jared Mitchell, who is our White Sox number one prospect, and I agree he should be our number one White Sox prospect, had vaulted a bunch of guys who, who we had ranked ahead of Jared Mitchell going into the draft. And Mitchell had a good debut, but it wasn't, you know, an Evan Longoria-type debut where you just were like, wow, this guy's unbelievable. And so we just tried to be more consistent with that. I think uh, Alex White, for whatever reason, I think as he ranked lower down a deep Indians list, got lost in the shuffle a little bit. Well, you know, we had Alex White ranked as a, you know, a top 10 or, I guess, top 11 talent going into the draft. So, I think the point there is is that we have so much information on these guys going into the draft. So many of the guys who got drafted last year didn't even play or played very briefly in the fall league because they signed so late. So we didn't want to just rip up our rankings and move a guy like Jared Mitchell, who, who still rose in our estimation. But Jared right. Mitchell we had ranked as the 27th best prospect in the draft. And all of a sudden jump him ahead of a guy like Shelby Miller or Zach Wheeler who we had as clear top 10 talent. So we, right. we made some adjustments. I think Jared Mitchell was a guy we, we tweaked down a little bit, and, and Alex White was a guy we had to move up a little bit. Yeah, Jared Mitchell is going to be a really interesting case because I, I think I'm one of those. I've I've definitely jumped on the Jared Mitchell bandwagon, and I, I guess it's, again, it's so rare to see a college hitter who I think has some hitting ability, has some play discipline, and has plus athletic ability. There just aren't that many college players who – who have that. That's what makes, you know, Dustin Ackley so special. The thing is Jared Mitchell's nowhere near Dustin Ackley's league as a hitter. Um if he's a if he's a fifty major league bat, I think Jared Mitchell's gonna be a heck of a player because I do think the power will be evident down the line. But right now he's got contact issues and he didn't show any power with a wood bat, not home run power uh, that he's gonna have to show. So and the you know the the caveat with Jared Mitchell, while I really like him and I do believe in him, I wish he was in a different organization, let's put it that way. I think the White Sox are extremely aggressive with the way they promote players. They don't necessarily have a solution in center field uh, that I'm convinced will work. 
And Kenny on, Williams. They got Andre Jones. They got Andre Jones. <laughs> Please don't make me laugh because I'll cough too much. But, I mean, Jared Mitchell could be in the big leagues by the end of this year if he has a good year. I mean, Kenny Williams is Kenny Williams. It works for Kenny Williams, but I don't know if it's going to work necessarily long-term for Jared Mitchell. So he, he's definitely going to be a really difficult case to watch. Um, you mentioned Zach Britton earlier. Uh, I'm just, again, looking at the top 100. That's another guy who I think I found out more about as we did this process and probably wound up a little bit higher, I think, maybe than I thought he would. And I think if we redid the list again, he's a guy who probably would wind up even a little bit higher. But uh, by a different token, uh, Simone Castro, who's six spots ahead of him, I think it actually benefited Simone Castro that he uh, was ranked high in the Padres system because that kind of helped him get ranked right about where I think he needed to get ranked, even though, for my money, he's kind of an under-the-radar prospect. Uh, another guy, I think, who, who suffered by where he ranked in a deep system was Ben Revere. I feel like I almost kept Ben Revere off the top 100 because I ranked him sixth in the twin system. And, uh, you know, I kind of feel like uh, he got he gets a little lost in the shuffle. I still think he's a, more of a back-of-the-top 100 type of guy, but I was a little bit surprised he wound up outside the top 100. And uh, in retrospect, a little disappointed. And like I said, I take the blame. So if uh, if Ben Revere is uh, listening, then that's on me. Uh, if you had to take a speed guy, Peter Borges or Ben Revere, I think most clubs and most scouts would take Ben Revere because uh, this the same tool, speed, that is Borges' best tool, is Revere's best tool. As bad as, uh, you know, Revere's defense is a little iffy and Borges is a better defender. But the hit tool is so much more of an, it's such an advantage for Revere versus Borges. And who'd rather have the speed guy who can defend or the speed guy who can hit? I mean, you'd rather have the speed guy who can hit. So that's one where I think, in retrospect, uh, more having. I'm like Aaron Fitt. I'm already having remorse, uh, buyer's remorse. I wish we had Revere on there instead of Borges. But uh, but anyway, uh, that, that's that's what happens. Like you say, one day to the next, uh, this list would these kind of lists would change if you kept doing that list. Uh, one thing that made me think of also, Jim, and I wanted to ask about, uh, did your opinion of any organizations uh, change? Which we're going to get to that in our next issue about two weeks from now. We'll re-rank the organizations. We ranked them already for the handbook, but that's obviously a snapshot in December. We'll rank them again in March. Um, any, your opinions on any organizations change as you did uh, the top 100 uh, and as the list shook out and you gathered more information? so much in that regard, to be honest. I mean, there's obviously some organizations that have approved, most notably the Blue Jays, because of trades they've made, but it, it wasn't like there was a, an organization that had several players where I said, like, all these guys are a lot better uh, than I thought they were. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that there was necessarily an organization that, that, that jumped out in that regard. I mean, you know, we're talking about the guys we thought, you know, maybe were a little bit better, you know, like, you know, I mean, we knew Neftali Feliz and Martin Perez were good. You know, I alluded to them earlier. I thought the Rangers had the best organization in the minors, you know, in terms of minor league talent. So that didn't change. You know, I, I feel like maybe I was, you know, way low on Jose Iglesias listening to everybody rave about his glove, even though I'd heard some of that before. I didn't realize it was near universal raving. But, again, we had the Red Sox as one of the top organizations. Uh you know, the Indians, you know, we talked, you know, okay, we had to move Alex White up, you know, maybe he's a little low on our Indians list, but again, I, you know, we had the Indians as a top organization, so I don't really think there was a, an organization for me that jumped out in that regard, you know, if there was anything that jumped out about me, uh, organizationally, I, I guess what, it, the, the, the two most interesting things to me, maybe, were the fact that when you looked at which organizations originally signed these players, 
the Blue Jays didn't sign a single player on our top 100. Right. And the Phillies only have two players on our top 100 because all the trades they made were actually tied with three other teams for second place by originally signing five. So, uh, you know, and again, I mean, I don't think it was any great shock to any of us that the Blue Jays have not, you know, done a good job of procuring talent recently and that the Phillies have done a really good job. But, but that was what probably jumped out at me more than saying, oh, you know, this organization is deeper than I thought. You know, I guess if one thing surprised me, I do the Cubs list. I do think the Cubs are building their depth. I, I was maybe surprised a little bit myself that the Cubs had five guys on the list, which tied for second. And I, and I actually felt that Hachi Lee was one of the most memorable ambitions. So that would have been six. Uh, so maybe that jumped out at me a little bit too. Yeah, no, I, I, the, the bio organization, those charts did, uh, that surprised me quite a bit, actually. The fact that also we only had one original athletic and one original Diamondback. But the Diamondbacks used to be all over this list. But in recent years, uh, their farm system just isn't what it you know, used to be. They graduate a lot of that talent, and they've had some fairly conservative drafts of late, no doubt about that. Uh, Jim, a couple other questions that we've gotten into the podcast. I want to run by you real quick. Uh, a couple of them that are right up your uh, alley. A couple of Kyle Gibson and Aaron Crow questions. Uh, why did we rank uh, – Fred O'Neill wants to know, how did uh, Kyle Gibson rank below a guy like uh, Tanner Shepard's uh, when Gibson's predicted more as a starter, whereas Shepard's is more of a uh, is more of a starter closer toss up. I guess my quick explanation for why for that is that Shepard's did pitch in the fall league, which gives me gave me a, he had they both had injury questions. So Gibson's are more recent with the forearm strain that he had in the spring. That strain is like a stress reaction in his forearm, um, whereas Shepard's. You know, had the shoulder thing in the 2008 draft and then showed in the fall league that clearly his stuff uh, isn't affected by his past shoulder problems. He had pretty electric stuff in the Arizona fall league. That helped me, number one. I do think also that Shepard is closer to the big leagues, number two. Uh, I think Shepard has a bigger fastball, number three. Uh, all that said, long term, if you ask me who I'd rather have, Kyle Gibson or Tanner Shepard, that's a real toss-up. I think there's a chance that Tanner Shepard is going to start. Um, not having the medical on that, you know, not having the talk to anybody about the medical in depth enough for my taste to really know whether he's going to have a chance to start or relieve. That's the big toss up on, on Shepard's. But, uh, you know, I'm a little bit more careful, I guess, with a guy like Kyle Gibson, where those forearm injuries tend to be future Tommy John surgeries. Uh, how do you feel about that one? Um, I actually, maybe I'm in the minority, and I've always been a huge Kyle Gibson fan. I would take Gibson over Shepard's. I actually am much more worried about Shepard's for the long term because I just I, I can't think of too many guys who had a major shoulder issue and it just went away through rest and rehab. You know, usually those things crop back up. From all indications, I mean, it's it's unusual. Gibson's forearm injury came from hitting too many fungos in the bat, leading to a stress fracture in his forearm is the official explanation. I just think he's got better command of more pitches. And I think Shepard's just because of the health, I think he's going to wind up in the bullpen. But again, that's what makes this fun. You can, I, I would take Gibson over Shepard's. Obviously the rest of the staff didn't agree with me, but you could argue those guys, you know, you can make arguments for both guys. And that's what I think makes this stuff fun. Right. Yeah. You know, and Shepard's, uh, where did he wind up? What, 40 something? Where he? I forget where he ranked. Where he wound up in our rankings. Gibson's sixty-one. Shepard's is forty-two, and Gibson's sixty-one. And I think that's another point that you made in the Lost podcast. 
really not a huge difference there. 42 to 61 out of really thousands of players, when you're really thinking about it, is really not a significant dis- difference. Uh, even out of 100 players, not a huge difference. Um, and one other thing on the shoulder thing, you know, Joe Saunders to me is like the poster child of a guy who had a significant shoulder injury and overcame it and uh, really hasn't cropped up since then. He's had a, a great professional career. Um, and he had his shoulder issue as a pro uh, when he first signed. His first spring training, he showed up. He was hurt. He heard he actually had a torn labrum. And uh, he's always come back from it and never really had a problem since then. Has become kind of a an innings eater with the Angels. So uh, they're definitely success stories with the shoulder. And I think it's almost better if you have that success story with the shoulder when you don't have surgery, uh, and, and, and Shepard's did not have surgery. So I'm actually a little bit more optimistic about his shoulder than I would be if he had been cut on. So uh, oh, I agree just, with that. I think if you have it the shoulder, so I, I just, with Shepard's as talented as he is, I just talked to too many teams who are scared to death of him medically right. this year. But people were scared so, about uh, Jabba Chamberlain medically too. Yeah, and, but that was different. It wasn't his shoulder. Jabba was a, a, a knee issue. I understand that. See how that comes. Shepard, I mean, uh, but your man, knees, I, your I knees like are pretty important to pitching too. You got to have a foundation. Oh, I know, but all I'm going to say is, if Tanner Shepherds were to blow out his shoulder, his first spring training outing this year, I would not be shocked at all. I, huh? I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I just, I have much more concerns about his shoulder than I do about Kyle Gibson having a stress fracture in his form. I, I don't. It's not a forearm strain. I, I'm not too worried about it. I, I don't disagree with you on that either, as far as the medical either. I don't. I, I think that's a very fair point. If I, if I if you have a pitching prospect and you in your farm system and he's got an elbow injury and another guy's got a shoulder injury, I always bet on the elbow guy getting healthy over the shoulder guy every time. It's a much simpler joint, much easier fixes for, uh, available for that. Track record's better. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, Jim, uh, last thing, uh, anybody who got left off the top 100 besides some of the guys that you've uh, we've mentioned, uh, we have questions about these kind of things also. Uh, there's you can you can choose which one you want to answer, Jim. Which uh, which guy uh, that you left off the top 100 that you wish you could have gotten on? I, I know you've answered some parts of that in some ways. And also, is there a guy in the top 100 who's lower who's most likely to jump into, say, the top 10 or top 20 next year? Okay, well, the guy, I mean, Jose Iglesias is probably my biggest regret. I mean, other guys I liked who didn't quite make it were guys like Bobby Borchering, uh, Eric Hosmer, I wouldn't give up on quite yet, Matt Dominguez. You know, Hawk Chu Lee, you know, Brandon Snyder. I, I wouldn't say any of those. I was, you know, crying bitterly that those guys, uh, you know, didn't make it. Um, you know, I think guys, you know, toward the, if you're looking, you know, like, say, the bottom fourth of the list, the guys who maybe get underrated a little bit are the guys who have not played a whole lot. Um, I think Chad James is a guy who could rock it up the list. Uh, you know, guy's going to be a tough call again next year, and he was a tough call this year. Is just Jeff Decker with the Padres? I mean, he had a, a great year in the Midwest League. He's probably going to put up huge numbers in the Cal League, and his lack of athleticism just scares people to death. So I, it's he'll probably put up big numbers, and want we'll to figure out what to do with him. I think Mike Trout's a guy who could rocket up the list. Uh, you know, maybe a guy. You know, Miguel Sano was you know you know the international guy this year. Maybe he rockets up the list, although the flip side of that is the international guy from last year, you know, Michael Anola, didn't even play this year or play in 2009. So I guess those guys jump out. And to me, it is guys who could jump up the list. Yeah, and Anola, I don't even think we even thought about him for the top 100. I didn't. I mean, I know he got a lot of money last year. We jumped on the, 
the hype bandwagon, I guess you could say. I mean, I think it spoke volumes the way people talked about how good he was and the fact that the Rangers were not even the high bidder. Uh, people were in the industry were extremely excited about how good Michael Lenoa could be, and I think people are still excited about him. But I mean, if you don't temper your enthusiasm when a guy doesn't pitch for a whole year, I, I think you're kidding yourself. I think you have to temper your enthusiasm in a situation like that. Um, I, I tend to agree with you on not giving up on a lot of those guys. Uh, I had two left-handers who I really think could wind up, uh, or I would have loved to have gotten Pedro Figueroa of the uh, A's. I, I think he's a a power arm. I think it's hard to find a guy with two-plus pitches like him. If he were Cuban, Pedro Figueroa would get a many millions of dollars. It really wouldn't be thought of that differently in my mind than uh, Roldis Chapman. I know he doesn't throw 100 miles an hour, but I've, I've heard scouts who've seen him consistently 94, 96 for seven, eight innings uh, with power secondary stuff, a power slider, so uh, which is better than what you hear people talk about Chapman with. So uh, I think Figueroa is a little undersold. I know he has some command issues. Um, I, I happen to think he's a late bloomer. Uh, I also like Mikey Miner, who's a completely different kind of pitcher. Um, I think uh, more command and feel. Jimmy, you want to take back anything you ever said about Mikey Miner here? And, uh... <laughs> I never say anything. I'm, 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 I guess, known on the internet. <laughs> the guy who hates Mike Miner, and I think that's uh, unfair. Uh, all I ever said was I think you, the Braves could have drafted a better player at number seven. He's a guy who was real tough to get a handle on for the top 100 because going into last year, I think we Mike Miner rated way too high on our college draft list going into the year. I, I, I want to say we had him as one of the top three or four college players, didn't we? Mike Miner going we, into we the had, year, we, we did. Number five. Actually, here we go. We had him number five behind Strasburg, White, you know, Alex White, Grant Green, and Dustin Ackley. We had Mike Miner's the best guy. We felt, I, looking back, or even at the time, based on what we read about stuff, I was like, man, that's kind of high. This guy is not as good. His stuff's not as good as, say, Brian Mattis's. Then on the flip side, going into the draft, we had him ranked as the 23rd best prospect of the draft right before the draft began. There were about three teams who were looking to save money at the top of the draft who were prepared to take him in the top 10 if he was there. So I, I don't know if we've ever had a real good handle on where he should be ranked. It probably should have been as high as five. It probably should have been as low as 23. Um, but I, I don't know what to do. I'll put it this way. I'm really interested to see how he does this year. I don't doubt that he's going to make the majors quickly. I just think in the long run, I'll be shocked if he's the seventh-best player in the draft after he went seventh overall. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think you're right. I think he's more of that steady guy who'll contribute for a while. I don't think he's going to be a frontline guy that you build your pitching staff around, which is what I, what I would want. If I'm picking at seven, I like a guy who's a cornerstone player more than a, a solid player. I agree. I, I, think he, I think he has a great chance to be a solid player. But I don't see it as a big chance of being a cornerstone player. But yet, because I wrote that he wasn't the seventh best player in the draft, and the Braves, the Braves could take a Tyler Matzik at seven. To me, that's a no-brainer. They just didn't want to spend the money. Whatever. You know, the Reds could take in Tyler Matzik at eight. They took right. Mike Leakes. They didn't want to spend the money, and then they spent thirty million on Chapman. So I could, none of that stuff ever makes sense to me. Or I mean, Honestly, Alex or Alex White for both those teams. He was connected to both those teams. I wound up signing for less with the Indians, and that's one of the reasons why I think we think the Indians have one of the better farm systems. They got a top 10 talent at 15. Right. Yeah, and they kind of lucked out by being where they were because with White, he scared off both the Braves. Well, the Braves like minor a little bit more, but he definitely scared off the Reds with his asking price and wound up getting less than what the Reds paid league. So it's just that kind of goofy stuff. So anyway, it's not that I don't like Mike Miner. I know you were just joking, but it's there was another story out of Nashville in the last week or so. I've never said I don't like Mike Miner. I just said 
that if you're drafting on talent, Mike Miner should not have been the seventh pick in the draft. Yeah, I think we were closer to being right, honestly, with uh, 23 than we were with five. But I think we were reflecting the fact that even last summer, after the way he pitched with Team USA's college national team, teams at that time, in the picking in the top ten, were all taking a hard look at Mike Miner. And they all had him in the mix. Uh, really, I think that any team in the first 15 picks had to look at Mike Miner hard. And that's why I think even when we dropped him, I think you were still hearing that most teams thought he had a, a chance of going in those first 15 picks and did not think he would last past 20. So, um, you know, even though he doesn't have frontline stuff, I still, like I said, I still think I would have put him in for the back of the top 100. I think he's pretty certain to be a fourth starter. You know, I think he's better than Jeremy Sowers, for example. Um, he's very comparable. To, I mean, they're different. They're not exactly comparable. But he is somewhat comparable to Mike Leake, who went right behind him in the draft. And right. He's the bonus of being left-handed. So exactly. he's a guy who really knows how to pitch. Correct. Creates angle. Gets guys off balance. It's more than just raw stuff. So, anyway, uh, very long podcast, but that's not a bad thing. We won't lose this one. <laughs> I won't screw this one up. Uh, it should It should sound good. And uh, Jim just really enjoyed uh, being able to take time with you two days in a row, and uh, yes, look forward look forward to this one actually being posted. We'll have to do it more often. It was fun, and we thank everybody for the questions off our Facebook page. And again, you can email those questions into us for the next podcast at podcast at baseballamerica dot com. So uh, I'm sure everybody got to hear that little paper. We want to remind everyone that when it comes to buying a baseball bat, D Marini just changed the game, introducing Demo House, where you can step into the cage. And hit the latest from DeMarini before you buy, because there's no substitute for hitting a real baseball or talking to people who know both bats and batting. Your demo time in the cage is free. So get the season started right and visit your nearest demo house today. Locations and full details can be found at DeMarini.com backslash demo house. For Jim Callis, again, thanks for the time, Jim. I'm John Manuel. We'll see you next time on the Baseball American Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.